Do you have a story to tell about a terrible medical conversation? I want to hear from you. Please email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More. Our guest today, Elizabeth, is going to share with us a really common and important issue in medical communications. And while it translates to communication between patients and healthcare providers, it really starts with communication between us, healthcare providers, doctors talking to doctors, or doctors not talking to doctors, and all of the downstream effects that that can have. So Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So tell me about your story. So we're talking about your stepfather who was hospitalized Mm -hmm. a year ago. Tell me what happened. Yeah. So his journey kind of started about a year and a half before he passed away where he started having, he had a, a mini stroke and he started having trouble walking. He was falling a lot, that sort of stuff. And the last like four months of his life, he went from kind of doing all right to just a really almost a steep decline. He was having trouble walking where he would get up and he he couldn't move his legs. And he started developing horrible ulcers on his feet and he was in a lot of pain. And it was just, it was just really tough to see. So a few weeks before he died, he was admitted into the hospital because he just couldn't move. Like he was just, he couldn't get up anymore. You know, he and my mom were living alone together and it was a lot for her. He would, you know, he'd get out of the shower and would basically sit down on the floor and couldn't get back up. So they took him to the hospital and, you know, the day that he was admitted, I think it's the generalist, whatever the doctor on the floor was, came in and kind of did an assessment. And they were very blunt with him and and basically said your legs are dying and ultimately you're dying like they were very straightforward and they just kind of came out and said it and you know i think my my mom and and my stepfather were both a little shocked by that because i don't think he felt like he was but that was kind of where we started and then as the days went on the cardiologist came in and they said, oh, you're not in heart failure. You know, your heart's okay. And the vascular doctor came in and, you know, he had the vascular disease in his legs that prevented the circulation. And he said, you know, we could put a stent in that would help this, but I don't want to do this because I don't think your heart's going to be strong enough. And I don't think you're going to survive the surgery. But the heart doctor just said his heart <laughs> was fine. The podiatrist came in and said, oh, your feet will heal. We just need to get better circulation. And But they it didn't seem like they were all talking to each other. And so they're all talking to my mom separately. And they're all saying that this is fine. This is fine. This is fine. But nobody's doing anything. Like nobody was taking any action to do anything to make him better. That was just kind of wait and see, wait and see. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, he was gone. But meanwhile, oh, my God. You know, my mom was, you know, doing all this stuff to try and get him home. And she's often wondered, 
did they tell her that because nobody really wanted to be honest and break it to her? Like there really wasn't anything that they could do, but he was 92. And so he was, let's just, let's just kind of bide our time. Or was there something that they could do? And, but nobody wanted to do it because he was 92 and they didn't want him, you know, they didn't want something to happen that would kill him. Like what, Mm. but nobody seemed to communicate. And so my mom was just working to get him home. And then all of a sudden one day she woke up and, you know, she got a call from the rehab facility and she went over thinking that, you know, something happened overnight and he was gone and she was just totally blindsided. She had no expectation of him dying like that. Wow. So it's funny because I think, you know, the very first doctor that you talked to, the generalist, that's actually a very interesting word. Just the root of the word is like in general, right? Like somebody who's doing everything. He turns out told you the correct information, you know, probably the first and only time you heard what was accurate because he was not looking at one specific organ system. You know, the cardiologist is looking at his heart saying, yeah, his heart's okay. And then the vascular doctor's looking at his legs like, ah, we could do something. And then the podiatrist is looking at his feet, but nobody's looking at the overall big picture, which is this is a 92-year-old man who has a complex circulation problem. And the only way to correct it is to do a procedure. And whether his heart is good or medium, it's still a 92-year-old heart. And the Mm -hmm. likelihood of it really kind of tolerating a major procedure is not good. So why does that happen in medicine? Like I think about this a lot. And I think it starts with, or it's much worse now, in the advent of what we call hospitalists. So it used to be like when I started My day, my work day would start with a visit to the hospital where I would round on all of my patients that were hospitalized. And I would look at the chart notes and I would chat over a cup of coffee with the cardiologist or this and that. We would kind of like have almost an informal meeting of the minds, right? But then over time, it just became impossible for primary care doctors to keep going to the hospital for a lot of reasons, you know, time, we couldn't spend the time for the reimbursement, but more importantly, hospital medicine really changed and evolved and got so good that primary care doctors were not qualified to take care of hospitalized patients anymore. So this whole new specialty was born, this hospitalist specialty. So now, you know, my patient is hospitalized. I'm no longer their primary care doctor. They're under the care of this generalist or hospitalist who, you know, gets all of his or her information from the patient chart, but doesn't really have that relationship with the patient and definitely does not have the relationship with the family, right? So I think that's really where the breakdown is. That hospital stay required a quarterback, or like you said, in our pre-conversation, a coordinator. And in most times that coordinator would have been the primary care doctor. So tell me about your stepfather's primary care doctor. Where was he or she in this process? I don't know. I asked my mm. mom if she ever heard from his primary care physician while he was hospitalized or while he was, even after he was, you know, moved into rehab, if she ever heard from his primary care doctor. She never did. She never heard from his normal cardiologist. I think all of the doctors that she talked to were at that point, I think they were just doctors that were in the rehab facility that were there. 
she never heard anything from them. The unfortunate thing about it is my mom and I have two sisters and my stepfather has two sons and a daughter. And I just think, I feel like we would have handled things so much differently if we had, like, if we had really known and if, it was really just like, yeah, this is it. Like spend the time that you have with him while you have it. And and we didn't get an opportunity to really do that because it was always, oh no, he could, he'll be fine. He'll, the these wow. will heal and, and he'll, he'll be home. So the other piece of it. So one piece is the communication between doctors or lack mm-hmm. of. And the second thing is the absence of a quarterback or a coordinator or a team captain. Like, so those two things immediately make this a really not great situation. But then you have a 92-year-old patient. And how old was your mom when this happened? She was 79. So still, you know, she's not in her 90s, but she's not young Mm -hmm. and probably very overwhelmed. Mm. But yet, She's the go-to person and she, as the wife, feels like it is my responsibility to take in this information. But, you know, even you and I at our age, not 79, would be overwhelmed with all of this. It would be so helpful to have another set of ears. But doctors don't like to do that. And, you know, we use this excuse of like HIPAA. I'm only talking to, you know, one person. It's HIPAA. That's nonsense. Because if you are the family and collectively you've decided that whether it's you or all three siblings or all six blended siblings have the same rights to this information, then it is not a HIPAA violation. I think that we should choose one or two people. It's very hard to talk to six people, you know, Mm -hmm. and tell everybody the same thing. But why couldn't you designate a adult son or daughter or stepson or daughter and say, hey, we would also like to be in on these conversations and sort of help your mom navigate this. Tell me how that would have gone if somebody had said to your mom, hey, is there someone else we should talk to? Yeah, I think that that would have been incredibly helpful for her and for us and and for my stepfather for that matter, because yes, you're right. She was very overwhelmed her vision, like she was very tunnel vision of, I just need to get him home. I need him to eat. I need him to do his exercises. I need him to do this. I need him to do that. And like all these things that she was just focused on getting him to do just so she could get him to come home. Mm -hmm. Now, meanwhile, we're all in the background thinking, I don't think he's ever coming home. Now we didn't expect Mm -hmm. him to die so quickly, but we didn't really expect that he would be able to come home Mostly because, or if he did, he was coming home with like full-time care because she couldn't, she couldn't help him get around anymore. It was just too much. But I think if there was one other person that wanted, like if the doctors or somebody had recognized, like, yes, he is their patient, obviously. But if somebody recognized that here's a woman, like you said, who's, you know, nearing 80, who clearly just wants her husband to come home and is you know, very deep down petrified that he won't and isn't necessarily acknowledging that he might not. I think that also we we could have maybe read between the lines a little bit more where she just wasn't willing to see. Had somebody, you know, said, 
can we talk to one of your daughters so we can explain what's going on? Then we might have been able to kind of communicate in a way that she might understand or, or at least prepare her for the fact that, you know, things aren't really as, you know, sunny and peachy as they, she's interpreting them to be. Thinking, yeah. Right. And so why do doctors do that? Like, why do we... It's hard to tell people bad things. I mean, that is a fact. It really is. But it's so bad for patients to be blindsided by a death that is unexpected. Whether I mean, he was 92. Nobody would mm-hmm. have been shocked if his life was ending, right? right? But not like that. Not like she's at home, like putting all these things in place mentally, you know, literally. And then all of a sudden she gets a call and he's gone. And no doctor, except for that very first one, and I want to go back to that conversation for a second, really set her up. Like nobody set yeah. her up for that expectation. So when that first doctor came in and said, look, he's 92, these legs are bad, the legs are going to go, and then he's going to go. How did your mom take that? What was her reaction to that conversation? She was devastated. So she calls us, you know, sobbing. My stepfather was in the room when that message was delivered. He was shocked. So he was upset. And I didn't speak to him about it, but, you know, she did, obviously. And obviously that's devastating to hear at any age. But then the next day the message changed. And so then it was a whole different it was a whole different thing. You know, my, then it was, you know, my stepsister was going to fly in and see him. And my mom said, no, just wait until he's home. He'll be home in a couple of weeks. Just wait until he's home. And he never So, yeah. So, you know what? So that first doctor is ultimately right. And then the next doctors tell your mom what she wants to hear. I don't think they were malicious about it. I think that they were like, you said they were tunnel visioned, you know, like, that that heart doctor was right. He's not in heart failure. Heart failure did not kill your stepfather. But by mm-hmm. saying those words to someone who was just grasping for any bit of hope, he gave her unrealistic expectations. And that's ultimately what she hung on to. So do you think that if that first doctor had sat down, and this is what I'm envisioning should have happened, that first doctor actually pulls up a chair and sits down, ideally with one of you and your mom and your stepdad, and says, look, here are all the reasons this is not a good situation. It's not just because you're 92, and kind of like really explains why at 92 this is not good. And then the second step this doctor could have and should have taken would be to maybe reach out to the cardiologist, which he ordered, by the way. The generalist asks the cardiologist to come in and (laughs) asks the vascular doctor, and he's the one who Ask them to consult. So maybe had he had a conversation like, look, I talked to this family. Here's what I set them up for. I really need you to just weigh in and sort of corroborate that. Of course, tell the medical truth, you know, be accurate about it. But here's where the conversation is coming from. What would you think if that cardiologist came in and said, look, honestly, his heart is fine, but he's not fine. And the vascular doctor came in and said, there's a procedure, but because of all of these other things, he won't survive it. And then the podiatrist came in and said, yeah, I mean, technically these things could heal, but there's all of these other things. I mean, just having three, four, five doctors tell your stepmom 
the same thing, she would not have been blindsided. Would you say that? Yeah, Yeah. she wouldn't, she wouldn't have been blindsided. And yes, it would have been hard for her to hear, obviously, but it would have given her an opportunity to spend the time that she had left with him differently. Instead of pushing him, which I can tell you for the last year, she's been beating herself up because she's, she pushed him so hard. Like she, you know, I just hope he knows that I wasn't, you know, I was just doing it because I wanted him to come home. Like she could have spent that time talking to him and sitting with him and letting him sleep if he needed to sleep instead of saying, come on, you got to get up. We have to get you home. We have to, you know, please do your exercises. I know it hurts, but you got to do them so you can come home. But like reinforcing that for both of them, I think would have given them a different kind of time together. It would have given his, you know, his children the opportunity to really come and see him and spend time with him and not, you know, wait until he was home instead of, you know, running back and forth to, you know, maybe a nursing home. I just think it would have helped her, but I think it also would have helped the entire family to know what the actual, you know, the outcome was. Like we can sit, I I can sit here and tell you like when he first went into the hospital, you know, we were like, I don't think he's going to survive the summer. But after mm. a week of this, these messages coming from my mom, I was like, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll make it till wow. Christmas. You know, the outlook completely changed. And I think had the message just been gently reinforced, reinforced. and just, mm-hmm. this is like, this is it. I don't know when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen and it is not far off. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, we all could have approached things a little bit differently. And it would have been helpful for everybody, for him, for for the family. And so, you know, to peel back the curtain a little bit, and I think this is important for people to understand because this is a such a common story, not necessarily the outcome, but just this idea of someone in the hospital having multiple specialists and not having a clear message and, and sometimes not having a clear plan of care. Like, what are we doing? Are we giving him antibiotics? Are we doing a procedure? Like, why is he in this hospital? So to pull back the curtains on it a little bit, now that the primary care doctor is not usually in the hospital, you have this hospitalist who's coordinating all the care, who's taking care of pretty much every single patient in the hospital. It's a lot. And they're just trying to kind of like take every step to get the patient from being in the hospital to being out of the hospital, right? That's the goal is like get people out of the hospital better, make them better and get them out of the hospital. And so that path doesn't allow for a lot of time. It doesn't allow for really sitting down and like looking at the big picture or, you know, calling that consultant on the phone and saying, really, what do you think? And so if there is a one person in charge of every single patient case, you know, a in-charge doctor or an in-charge social worker or, you know, somebody who's pulling all this information together, the plan is clear, the communication between each other is clear, the communication with the family is clear, and the expectations are clear, right? But nobody has that time, right? So, for me, if I, I get this notification, usually through a medical record, not through a phone call, that my patient has been hospitalized. And I get that in the middle of my work day. So I, you know, read through the notes. And I'm like, oh gosh, this sounds terrible. You know, I'll wait till the end of my day, nine, 10 hours later, and I'll make a call to whoever I'm supposed to call. And it's usually the wife or the daughter or whatever. And 
the only information they can give me is what they got from the person in the hospital, right? <laughs> so it's like down the line information because I, for me to try to get a hold of that hospitalist is almost impossible. They're running around a hospital. It's mm -hmm. so, so, so hard. And that's not an excuse, but that's just the reality of it. But here's where I think a primary care doctor could have made a difference. Like, I know your stepdad, and it doesn't really matter what the hospitalist said or what the cardiologist said or what the vascular guy said. I know him because I've been taking care of him for 10, 15, 20 years. And from what I can gather from reading hospital notes, which I'm capable of doing now this without being in the hospital, this is not good. And I could tell you that Whatever they have said to you, knowing what I know about your stepdad, this is not going to end well. And I could have been that voice of resetting expectations. I'm not your, your stepfather's primary care doctor. I'm just kind of like, right, you know, setting an example, right? Like yeah. that really should have happened. So I don't know why your, the primary care doctor wasn't involved. Maybe they didn't know, you know, I don't know, but that. That, I feel, could have made a huge difference. Did they have a good relationship with his primary care doctor? They were fairly new to the area. But, I mean, but still, like, yes, they're new to the area. But that's a doctor that they selected, that they trusted. And, I mean, even if it was just a, hey, I know that he's been hospitalized, I'm watching. Like, I think some just something to know that the person that they have gone to, whether it was two months or two years or 20 years, just was aware of it and was, hey, just said, hey, I'm here if you have questions or if you need to talk about anything, let me know. I'll be happy to go over, you know, any of this stuff with you. I think that would have, that would have gone a long, long way. You know, I remember when my son was four days old, he ended up back in the hospital and we had gone to a pediatrician that we had selected. I had taken him to the pediatrician for his two day checkup and he had very bad jaundice. And I didn't, Aww. I didn't realize how dangerous jaundice was to me. Everybody had jaundice, but when they, right. sent him, you know, when they sent me home from the hospital on Sunday, they said, well, just stick him in front of a window. And they didn't say if his eyes turn yellow, call us, or if his face starts to turn yellow, call, like there was nothing like that. Just pop him in front of a window. And I popped him in front of a window, fully clothed, so I didn't even know, like, <laughs> stick him in a diaper in front of the window. So he really wow. gets the sun, you know. And so when I took him back, I couldn't get an appointment until two days later. And when I took him back, this is the first time seeing this new pediatrician. She was like, you got to take him to the hospital. I took him to the hospital. They're like, he needs to be admitted into the NICU. His billy was up to, like, 21. You know, he might need a blanket. Well, not the billy blanket. They were talking about the, not the, it's not a transfusion, the Oh, where like they take half or something. They take half the blood out, put half blood in. I can't remember exactly what it's called. And I never heard from the doctor. The pediatrician never called me as a new mom to say, how are you? How's the baby? Like, can I do any? Like, I, it was the first, I, yes, it was the first time I met her. Sure. But I expected as her patient, as a first time mom to call me and say, I sent you to the hospital. How is your son? How are you? Is there anything that you need help with? Can I answer any questions? Never heard from her. I never wow. saw her again. I, I switched pediatricians after that because that just doesn't. I guess so. So, you know, I, well, maybe you don't know, but I'm married to a pediatrician who's been in practice for he is our pediatrician. A lot. Of, oh, <laughs> he's been in practice a long time. And uh, this is the honest to God truth. 
you know, I joke with him that, you know, I'm like, you're not a real doctor. You're like a glorified grandmother. You just coach people through <laughs> fevers and earaches. And, you know, of course, like that's just me being mean to him, but he does a lot, but he maybe a couple times a month, he sits bolt right up in bed in the middle of the night in a panic because he remembers a patient that had a thing and he doesn't know how that came out. And immediately in the morning, he's calling the mom or whatever. And, you know, it's funny, like the glorified grandma thing is a joke, but when he talks to people whose kids have been hospitalized, he's never like, okay, well, here's the medicine that's going to be prescribed next. And here's what they're going to do next. No, he's just like, listen, this is going to be fine. Here's what you can expect. He's in the right place. It's just a lot of reassurance, a lot of, you know, oh, and when you get home, we're going to be right here. Just knowing that you have backup, even though he's not physically in the hospital with you, that's what the primary care doctor's role is in situations like that. Just yeah. be there. Just give somebody a blanket, you know, wrap them in the reassurance that they're not alone in this very scary thing. It's huge. It's huge in everything, you know, and the two extremes, right? A four day old and a 92 year old, yep. same thing. They same just thing. need that coordinated, like, I care about you enough to reach out to you and help you navigate this very hard thing. Yes. Help me interpret what all of these other doctors are saying. And so that I can digest it and I can ask my questions and I can really understand like, what do I need to be afraid of? What don't I need to be afraid of? And what do I do next? Yeah. I want to close just with a couple of things. First of all, I've been in all kinds of like parts in my career. When I started, I had very few patients. I was by myself. I knew everybody. I did everything. I saw everybody in the hospital. Like I was a one man show and my patients loved it and it felt really good. And then things got busy, medicine changed, whatever. And I got to a place where I was, I thought of myself as the untouchable. And I remember having very clear conversations with my staff. Like they would be like, Hey, this person called. They want to talk to you. I'm like, no, I'm not getting on the phone. They need to talk to X, Y, Z, like, I don't talk to people on the phone. I hate myself for saying that, but that's the honest to God truth. There was a period in practice, thank God, not very long, where I was like, no, they can get their information from somebody else because I'm too busy like seeing people in the office. And now on the other side of that, I make it a point to call two or three people every single day on the phone myself. And it feels so, so good, even though their initial reaction is always like, oh my God, why are you calling me? Like people <laughs> are so shocked, you know, and I even just last week I had this patient, I had this long conversation with her, like this entire conversation. And at the end she goes, okay, will you, will you just make sure Dr. Meyer knows all this? I'm like, this is Dr. Meyer. She's like, what? Herself? I've been talking to her herself the whole time. I'm like, yes. And I, you know, I just say to myself, like, how did we get here? How did we go from, you know, I'm going to hold your hand through everything to you can't talk to me at all because I'm too busy and I'm too important to if I call you, it's either because something devastating has happened or it's just so unbelievable that it's not in the realm of reality that my primary care doctor is actually going to get on the phone with me. So 
taking this this episode, and I, I really want to walk away with some actionable things that we can all do, right? So mm-hmm. primary care doctors listening, like we should be following up with our people that are hospitalized, even if we're not directly involved in the care in the hospital. Even just if all we're doing is that glorified grandmother thing, put my arms around you and tell you I'm here for you, right? That's, I think, a message for healthcare providers and primary care. But for you, Elizabeth, tell me what a patient in your situation, so you have a loved one in the hospital, you're getting mixed messages. What do they do? Well, I think truthfully, find out who the coordinator is. Like, is there somebody that can pull everything together and get all the doctors in a room, even if they can't meet, you know, with the patient together? Because I know that's probably hard with schedules and everything, but at least go out to each of those doctors and find out like the truth of what's happening and pull that truth into one document to then talk to the patient or their, you know, their next of kin or whatever, and really give it to them straight. You know, I know it's a hard conversation, but it really is in the long run. I think it would do everybody justice because not just the patient, but again, the family, because they will make different choices based on that information. So I think that's one thing, having the primary care doctor's reach out and just say, Hey, I, I see that, you know, your husband's hospitalized or how is he doing? What can I do for you? What questions can I answer? What can I find out? And as a doctor, whether you're a specialist or the hospitalist or the general, you know, you're the primary care, when you're talking to somebody who is the next of kin, find out if they you know, kind of tease out, do they have blinders on? Do they recognize what's really happening? Do we need to get somebody else involved in the conversation so that someone who's, you know, maybe one step removed can yeah. say, okay, this is what's happening. We need to kind of start steering the ship a different direction so that Again, different choices can be made and the end of the life stages for somebody that's in that position, they, it's a different experience for them because they're not working super hard to come home when they're not going to, you know, they're able to just relax and eat ice cream when they can get food in their (laughs) face and, you know, and just be comfortable. Make the most out of those last days, right? Exactly. So you are an extremely well-spoken, gentle, you know, person. I know you and I can tell just from this conversation. But the other thing I have seen, and this just happened not long ago, you know, patient in the hospital, family's not getting any information or they're getting mixed messages. And I had, it was actually not my patient. It was a friend. The wife of the patient wanted to talk to the doctor in charge. She wanted to have a conversation. And they're like, oh, you know, they're rounding, they're this, they that. They gave her like a million excuses. And after several days, she just got fed up. And she said, I am not leaving this nurse's station until you get that doctor. And she literally stood at the nurse's station for hours standing in front of this nurse and just said, I am not leaving. They're like, ma'am, just wait in the room. We're going to go. We'll get. No, it was like a hunger strike. Like finally, (laughs) the doctor was, the nurses were so fed up by this lady standing there in front of them that the doctor came down and was forced to talk to her. So, 
you know, it's that thing, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? And nobody wants to be that person. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to be that nudgy, pain in the neck, like angry, mean, but sometimes that is the only way. So again, to all of us healthcare providers listening, why? Why do we have to have people be mad? Like just <laughs> try to do the right thing before it gets to that point where people are angry. But I will say to patients who have done everything, like you seem like your family really did and put so much trust in people. If you have to be that person that's, you know, holding a hunger strike at the nurse's station to get accurate information, do it. Sometimes that's really the only way. Well, this was amazing. I think you brought up such an important point. You know, unfortunately, healthcare has gotten better. You know, people are living longer. We have so much technology. We have so much just in the way of like sharing of information, but it's also gotten so fragmented almost for the very same reasons. And we really need to try to bring it back, like you said, for the patient's sake, but also for the family's sake. I really appreciate your time. I think if there is any other situation like that, that you want to come back and talk about, I would very much appreciate it. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. For everybody listening, if you have a healthcare situation, a conversation that you want to talk about, hospitalized patient, lack of communication, or otherwise, please reach out to me. I want to talk to you. Christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare. 